Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Who Says No. I threw in two extra welcomes because it's been a little while. So you know what? We really have to get you guys back in the swing of things. Today we're going to talk about a team that I don't think gets talked about very much on this podcast or really on any national podcast. They tend not to be a big story of national interest, but right now they are. Although, of course, my guest would disagree because he covers them consistently. Mark Schindler from Indy Cornrows and Premium Hoops. Mark, how are you? Uh, first of all, I'm really good, man. Uh, thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm psyched to talk. It's been a little bit since we've talked, but I, uh, I will say I, I, I have no dispute for you, man. Um, th- this team is just not consistently on the national radar, and I think I, I get it to an extent. Um, the reason that they're in the national radar is, uh, has made my week interesting, um, to say the least. But, yeah, I'm excited to dive into it, man. Uh, it's it's going to be a good time. The last time we talked, I basically spent 45 minutes trying to convince you that everybody should tank. And you fought back a little bit, but like, I think I kind of convinced you by the end. Well, now we're talking about a team that never, ever, ever tanks. And that's sort of the interesting place to start with them. For the first time in, I believe, 31 years, they're going to have a losing record at home. The Pacers, Mm -hmm. I wrote about this a little bit this week, are sort of the picture of competence in the NBA They may not have ever won a championship, but they're always good. And I think that was a viable organizational strategy for a long time, especially in a small market. But it sort of feels like bringing knives to a gunfight in an era where like one team can have Kevin Durant, James Harden and Kyrie Irving. It sort of seems like the NBA is moving away from this model of, you know, let's put on a good product for our fans. Let's make sure that people get their money's worth when they buy tickets. And it sort of turns into this world of haves and have-nots. Either you're a contender or you're a tanker trying to become a contender. The Pacers have never been that. But over the last couple of years, like, we've seen some rumbles within the organization that, like, they might not be super thrilled with just being okay every year. I mean, that was sort of the motivation behind firing Nate McMillan, right? It was the idea is we're going to modernize. We're going to shoot more threes. We're going to be more exciting and try to give ourselves a higher ceiling. Well, injuries have been a part of that, don't get me wrong, but they haven't exactly lived up to that. So let's start there. Obviously, there's a lot of drama in the locker room. I just, I'll give you the floor to say whatever it is that you want to say. Let's start. How do you feel about the team right now? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's been a lot to parse through um, trying to figure out where I'm at with this team. Uh, I mean, I, in, in a lot of ways, I guess record-wise, um, they're not too far off of what I expected this year. Uh, I knew that they were going to take some lumps playing a different style. A lot of what made them so good under uh, Nate McMillan was consistency. I mean, they played every single game and prepared for every single game like it was a playoff game. And I think that always showed through and was why they were so consistently good in the regular season, but also why they struggled in the postseason because they didn't really have um, outside their base. They just really didn't have a lot else to throw at you. Like they had one of the best base defenses in the NBA for a decade um, outside of a couple of years. And, uh, you know, that a, a, as you go away from that, we've, we've seen that that's changed up a lot this year. I still have no idea how they're just about league average in defense because nothing about them on defense has been remotely league average. Um, yeah. When I was looking at it before we recorded, I saw they were 14th and I had to do a double take because like the games that I've watched them this season, it's like, number one, there's no identity. Like it seems like they're trying the Nick nurse menu of like, we'll throw out any weird thing anytime, but they don't have Nick Nurse caliber defenders, so it hasn't really worked. The fact that they're 14th was very, very surprising to me. Oh, yeah. Trust me. Every time I check it, I'm like, are you going to go down? Are you going to go down? And it never does. Um, 
you know, it's, it's really tough because I do think this team has a, a you know, a, a lot of people now are saying that they should, should blow it up. And I guess there's always credence to the idea of changing things up, but especially with where the, the team is at now, or I should say organization is at now. Um, you, you do have to mention TJ Warren's injury, of course. Uh, I mean, Miles Turner's missed a bunch of time. Uh, they've just had a lot of injuries up and down the roster. I still don't think it, it like, I, I still don't think that they'd be any higher than the sixth seed if they're fully healthy this year. Um, just given how all the X's and O's have played out. But I do think you can make the case, like if they're fully healthy and they had Nate McMillan, maybe they're in Atlanta's spot this year. Like you could squint and say that, I guess. But uh, I would say what I'm really excited about for this team is to get their first lottery pick since 2015 uh, when they drafted Miles Turner, because I think that could change the calculus. Like I think instead of a full, um, and I'm sure we're going to get into this more, so maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but in terms of looking at a, a full tear down and rebuild I think it's gonna be more of maybe that like I mean if they don't split up the two bigs this offseason I'll have serious questions uh oh I have some ideas trust me we'll get oh yeah I mean I was I was of the mindset uh after the playoffs that they should separate the two bigs I I just didn't think that there was anything um to like I, I I thought that they had the leeway to go on and try it again and just see what happens with the new coach but I personally, you know, it's easy for me to say uh, sitting at my desk, but I, I would have personally broken them up and just tried to tried to go in a different direction right away. Um, they didn't. It's fine. Uh, but I think we've seen enough now to know that, OK, it, it's time to go in a different direction. And clearly they thought so, too, when they tried to go out and get Gordon Hayward um, in that sign and trade with Miles Turner that ended up falling through. Um, but just to, to go back really quick to the X's and O's, the offense has been really like. I think the offense has been um, a plus like that has been good this year. The the offensive rating doesn't quite speak to what they've done because especially like we've mentioned with missing TJ Warren, um, I do think the offense is a lot better than, than it was last year. Um, again, it's like, the, it's so hard to parse through all of the data and, and have a really solid vision of it. They were top 10 in both before the Victor Depot trade, which was the healthiest the team was. Um, again, that's without Karis LeVert, but I think, you know, you can you, squinting and, and doing my extrapolation, you can, you can look at it that way. Um, the process has been a lot better than the results. And I think that stands out to me because that's what a lot of the years been process over results and just trying to see how things are working. The process and the results have been absolutely terrible on the defensive end. As we mentioned, that was like, I mean, I think about, uh, I want to say two games into the season, two games into preseason, um, me and uh, Caitlin Cooper, uh, great, great writer. Uh, I'm fortunate to work with her at Indy Cornrows. Uh, we, we did a podcast and we were like, I understand they're changing things defensively, but they're changing everything defensively. And they went from last year um, in 2020, they were the sixth ranked defensive group in the NBA. Uh, and w- like that, that's the kind of thing where I understand wanting to throw in some new things, maybe wrinkle the system a little bit. But when you're a top, I mean, a top six defense is elite. Like that's an elite level defense. You have most of the same personnel. Why would you change that up? Um, that was something that, that stood out right away. And that is, uh, I mean, as we saw, even against the, the Wizards again last night, they've surrendered almost 300 points in, in the last two games to the Wizards. Um, you know, it's just, it, it's a lot of head scratching. So I, I agree with you offensively. The numbers don't reflect this. It's been a resounding success. Now mm-hmm. it hasn't been a success for maybe the reasons that they thought it was going to be yeah. right. Like I think the assumption when they hired Bjorkren was like, they're going to fire off a million threes. Well, no, they ranked 17th in threes. 
And honestly, like the three point jump, it really only comes down to a couple of guys, right? Like mm-hmm. Malcolm Brogdon is taking 2.4 more threes per game. Sabonis taking 1.5 holiday, taking 1.7 beyond that. Like, I think we all expected this is the year miles Turner takes seven threes a game. He hasn't, you know, we expected maybe some of the other guys McDermott is shooting, I think fewer threes, right? Like this hasn't been an organizational culture shock as far as modernizing goes. It's been a few guys who are taking more and making more, but the real success, I mean, I watched the Atlanta game the other night and I swear, like there were some elements of like the Steve Kerr offense in there where it's like death by a million cuts. Now they've had a lot of shooting success recently that I don't know is translatable. I think a lot of what Sabonis has done recently when he's been absolutely incredible and like downright, I hate to use this, but there's no other way to describe it. Downright Jokic like over Mm -hmm. the last like few weeks, maybe a month. I think that is pretty translatable and something that like you could build on over the next several years. But I'll be honest, I don't think Nate Bjorkman is going to be back based on everything that I've read you're more locked in with the team than I am. Do you suspect that he's going to be back? I would say my biggest reasons for thinking that he might stay are financial, right? Like yeah. the Pacers, they gave Nate McMillan an extension and then fired him two weeks later. That costs money. Now they have another coach. Do they really want to pay three coaches at once? Um, yeah, that's a good question. And it's something I've thought about um, as well. I am... Um, so obviously I, I'm not reporting anything here. This is just me saying, I, I don't think that there's any justification for him to come back next year. And I think I'll be deeply disappointed if they bring him back strictly based on financials, uh, because this isn't just being like, I, I could stomach the, uh, the having a losing season that doesn't bother me. I, I like, like we mentioned there, there've been things that I've liked this year. that have been good. There've been some things that have been just frankly, like, I don't understand why anybody would do that at the NBA level. Um, that's 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 one thing, but the whole I mean that that Bleacher Report article, I know that the organization has refuted some of it, but that's not just from one person. I mean, you you know yeah. from being in 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 media, like there is a lot of validity to everything coming in there, and there's also stuff that isn't being reported that I'm sure is coming out behind the scenes. Um, you know that there's enough there for me to say this guy is not not good for the organization. Uh, I, I can't just say blatantly that he's not a good person, but based on everything that, that we've come across, not somebody who I really want to be associated with as an well, organization. We can just say this very straightforwardly. It seems like nobody likes it. Yes. Right? Like no, nobody, I'll fair. put it this well, way. Well, yeah, exactly. Not, not to cut you off, man, but stuff leaked from the front office, stuff leaked yeah. from the coaching staff and stuff leaked from the players. So who is backing you then? If, if, if nobody else and from people like from, from G league players that he coached from, uh, from people he coached with in other other places like it's not just uh it's not a one-time occurrence this is like across multiple years multiple destinations it's uh it's pretty 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 scathing i mean well you're right nobody has really come out to defend like they've re- refuted the reports but like we haven't had sabonis come out and say like no i actually love this guy we haven't had malcolm brockton come out and say like no, I actually yeah. love this guy. Like, that's kind of telling to me. Yeah. Kevin Pritchard hasn't issued a statement. Right. I'm thinking like, about the process of hiring Bjorkren. And it reminds me a little bit in the NFL of when, like, if you'd met Sean, Sean McVay once in college, mm-hmm. like, oh, you guys are like now that like, you know, this guy. So you have to be an NBA head or NFL head coach. I'm sort of feeling that way with Nick Nurse. And I think there's also just sort of this for lack of a better term, like poorly thought out process of like, 
oh, we want to modernize. We want to shoot a bunch of threes. We want to be analytically friendly. And I think something that tends to get lost in coaching moves is that fans especially seem to think we will stay as good as we are on one end and get better on the other, right? Like fans don't seem to recognize, and I think lately teams don't seem to recognize that like it takes work to hold your ground on the things that you're good at, right? Like the old coach might be the reason that you're good at this. Nate McMillan's track record on defense is incredible. And there's a reason that the Hawks have gotten a lot better on defense with him. So I think that they had this idea that like our defense is set. It's, it's not going to get any worse. We have the personnel. All we need to do now is optimize offensively. And we're going to have a chance to be a real contender. That's not something that's happened. And we've obviously seen the culture shock of going from McMillan to Bjorkren, who it seems like everybody dislikes. I don't want to jump the gun here, but I would say the likeliest scenario here is going from Bjorkren, who everybody dislikes, to Mike D'Antoni, whose players absolutely love him. He's maybe the most player-friendly coach in all of basketball, but that's still three coaches in three years, Mm -hmm. and that's also going to a coach who's not great defensively. So obviously, before you get into the personnel side of things, like, how do the players respond to this, right? Like, how do the players respond to three different messages in three years and all of this turmoil that comes with it? I'm pretty dubious, and I don't know. Like, it makes me think I wasn't against Nate McMillan getting fired when he was. I thought there were good reasons for it, even though he's a good coach. And even if it wasn't Atlanta, he deserved another shot somewhere. Like, he seemed like a coach that could fix the things that were wrong and the things that were right were very, very right. It just wasn't going to happen in Indiana. So I understood the idea of the firing, but like this sort of turmoil, it's not something that happens in Indiana, right? Like Indiana is, they're the Kings of competence. They're the team, Mm -hmm. the machine that just keeps chugging along. They're never in the lottery. They're always decent. Now there's a lot of turmoil here. Like what's that like organizationally? Like, what is it like to be at the center of the NBA world for negative reasons for maybe the first time, I guess since the Paul George situation. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, it's weird because it's the first time that I've, I mean, I've only been doing this for about a year, year and a half now. Um, so it's very different. You know, I've been the entire time I've been covering the team has been in, in, I don't want to say a state of turmoil, but all the rumblings from, from Victor Oladipo's camp were starting to come out when I started covering the team. And, um, definitely a different environment. And it's, it's weird because, like you mentioned, I mean, they go from being one of the, they are just one of the most stable organizations of, of the, of this century um, since 2000. I mean, they've like some semblance of the front office has, has kind of been handed down since 2000. I mean, you go from having Donnie Walsh hands it over when he goes to the Knicks, he, he hands it over to Larry Bird. Um, Larry Bird hands it down to, to Kevin Pritchard. I mean, it's, that's, that's, it, it's been that way. Like they, they, they instill a lot of the same values and mindsets. And um, I, I'm not saying it's like a, a bad thing. Like, I think it's, it's been good, but again, yeah, we're seeing so, some real cracks recently. And I think it speaks a lot less on the coach. I mean, the coach, obviously not well on him, but um, it's just an entire organizational thing. So this is going to be really pivotal to see what happens out of this. Cause like you mentioned, I, I mean, I don't know necessarily how players are feeling or thinking, but I can't imagine it's great. Um, especially I mean, the stuff that happened with Greg Foster um, in the Sacramento game, like that was more indicative to me, not of a, just a player coach relationship, more just like where the team is at. I mean, it, it looked like the team and coaching staff were just completely separate. Like um, it, that just felt extremely telling to me and seeing how they reacted. And uh, I've tried, I, I don't, I pride myself on being pretty optimistic, but I, I just don't 
think I'm going to be able to take anything positive away from the last, um, the, like the next week or so of games. Like, I, I don't really care what happens. I don't see what's going to happen in the playoffs. It's going to change. Um, I just think it's time to move on because pretty clearly, like, uh, I don't, this is just not something to me that I think you can mess around with and, and see what happens next year. Um, I think given everything that's happened with the players, you just have to be at a point and be like, Hey, we're going to handle this much better this time. Um, or at least I'm, it sounds nice. Uh, I don't imagine you could handle it much worse than you have this last one. Um, but I, I don't know. That's where I'm at. And I, I'm not sure, again, I'm not sure it'll happen. Um, because I thought he should have been fired, you know, like three or four days ago. Um, I think firing him three or four days ago sends a message that that organization doesn't want to send. Right. Like I think if they fire him mm -hmm. when the bleacher report story comes out, then the message is like, Oh, we're just responding to the media. We're trying to put out a yeah. fire. I think the likeliest outcome is that they lose their first playing game and he gets fired after that. Um, I, I do think there are positive micro developments here, right? Like, in a vacuum, I think this is the best basketball that Sabonis has ever played. If I didn't care about like people listening to this podcast, I would do 15 minutes on Edmund Sumner, who oh, is he's like so good. Yeah. Who's just one of my favorite, like he's one of those guys that just jumps off the page. Right. Yes. Like when you're trying to watch, like this really happened to me for the first time last year, like early on before he got hurt, where I was watching the Pacers and I was trying to write about Sabonis. And then for like 12 minutes, each of these games that I was watching was like, who's this Sumner guy? Like, why is he involved in everything that's happening, especially on defense? O'Shea Brissett is sort of the same way. Or like, that is a real fine. Getting him on that contract that they got him on is going to be a real win for them over the next few years. Like, there are positives here. It's just the macro picture is so negative that it's easy to dwell on that instead of the good things that are happening. To the point where, like, I think if you make a few minor fixes and maybe correct the organizational vision a little bit, you might actually have something pretty good here. Like, do I think they're going to win the championship next year? Probably not. Like, do I think they can beat Brooklyn? Probably not. But, like, I don't think the picture is, like, as negative as maybe it's getting painted out to be. I'm willing to believe that this is an outlier year from a chaos perspective. But you brought up Kevin Pritchard and you brought up this idea that, like, the Pacers are sort of run like a family business, right? Like, one GM passes it down to the next in line, who passes it down to the next in line. We've heard some rumblings that Kevin Pritchard isn't safe. I don't know how much I buy that. I would expect Kevin Pritchard to be back. Let's say hypothetically, this is a world where Kevin Pritchard gets fired. Mm -hmm. Do you think they like try to rebuild the organization and bring someone in from the outside? Or do you think they follow that pattern and say like, okay, next guy up? Yeah. Um, I mean, just to echo what you're saying, I think he's, I mean, he's, um, well, this is certainly a blunder. I do think I would have him in, in one of the top executives in the league, not like well, if you top just, five or anything, but like he, he's made very, picture. very good moves. If you look at the overall picture, it's negative. But if you mm -hmm. look at each move on an individual basis, like they're generally like very, every signing he makes is good. Like Justin Holiday, great value, you know, getting Sumner, getting Brissett for the pennies that they got them for great value. The Paul George trade was brilliant in hindsight. Now, Obviously, Old Depot didn't work out quite as they planned, but they turned that into Levert. Like, every individual move, a first-round pick for Malcolm Brogdon on a value contract, like, every individual move works out. The overall organizational picture might need to be changed, but, like, mm -hmm. let's not look at Kevin Pritchard and say, like, wow, there are a bunch of big major gaffes. There aren't. Like, he's generally made the best of his situation. Yes, exactly. I think that's the great way to put it. Um, 
And I would also say too, like, I just think he's built up so much equity with the Simon family. Uh, and that matters a lot considering, uh, they're not like a meddling ownership group. Um, they are, are luckily, I mean, they're, they're, they're content to, to let the people who know what they're doing, do what they do. Um, and I think they've, they've built a, a good enough relationship with KP that, that he's, he's going to survive this. Like, I, I don't really have too many questions about that unless something drastic happens. Um, but in the hypothetical that he were to be fired, I mean, I think that would signify to me that, that they want to move in a completely new direction and change things up. Um, I mean, I think the firing of Nate McMillan was pretty indicative that they, they do want to change things up. You know, they want to change where they're at. They weren't happy with being just a first round and out team. Um, so, so making that move was indicative. If you were to, yeah, I, I agree. If you, if you were to just cut the entire front office, um, the, the other thing that I think about that too, if that were to happen, because I was thinking about this on the, on the Indy Cornrows pod the other day, you know, if, if you were to cut the whole front office and get a new coaching staff, I just like, I mean, to me, it's, you almost have to do an entire roster teardown at that, at that point, uh, because you, you can't like whoever's going to come in, like if they, I should say, if they were to come in, you know, in that circumstance, um, they're going to have completely different ideas and visions of, of every player on the roster and, and how they want to utilize them. And that changes uh, value. Like one thing I always try and preach and talk about, like, I don't, I, we, we, we always try and put like this inherent value on a player and what they do, but it's just so context dependent. Like um, Jeremy Lamb this year looks like a much worse player than he was last year. Part of that, he came back from injury. Although I do think like physically he's looked like himself. Um, he's also having the best shooting season of his career, which yeah, is weird because you're unfortunately right. has tailed off a bunch over like the last month and a half. But like point being like it, he's a he is not a good defender. Like he's really not good at closeouts. He, he gambles a ton, but it didn't look that bad last year because they played a really conservative scheme and they have one of the best room protectors on planet Earth, Miles Turner. Um, and just the way that they played together, it didn't it didn't matter as much that that Jeremy wasn't awesome as an individual defender or even as a help defender. But this year in playing a blitzing scheme, he looks like legitimately the worst perimeter defender in the NBA at times. Um, so it's like things like that make it it's so it's harder for his offensive value to, to offset um, the issues that he has defensively when you're when you put him in that position. So like. You know, I've tried to temper fans with that because like, oh, Jeremy's so bad. He's so bad. I'm like, no, he's still he's roughly the same player as last year, but just the, the system changes everything. Um, so I know that was a long tangent, but I, I just think that's an important thing to look at. So the other I don't want to say this is like a major issue because for most teams, it wouldn't be. But expense is like quietly a problem for the Pacers, especially if they're going to be paying three coaches. Mm-hmm. Right now, they have one hundred and twenty one point five million committed for next year. The tax is going to fall roughly at 135 million, but that's before you re-sign McDermott, you re-sign McConnell. I guess you probably want to re-sign Jakar Sampson, although that's going to be pretty cheap. And then Edmund Sumner is non-guaranteed. I assume they're going to keep him. Um, at that rate, if you re-sign those guys, you're at the tax before you use the mid-level. And mm-hmm. guess what? The Pacers don't pay the tax. Like that's just not something that they do. Larry Bird used to grumble about this. He used to say, Oh, I don't have the budget that other executives have. Like, I think the raw talent base, unless they really, really hit home runs on the trade market, is probably going to go down. Now, they have a fair amount of like usable NBA depth where like Justin Holiday is a starting caliber player who comes off the bench for them, right? Like O'Shea Brissett's going to make the minimum and he's going to be a good rotation player. They have depth, but they're going to have a lower talent base. And if you're in the situation that they're in, 
where they don't have like, forget about a superstar. They don't have one of the 45 highest paid players in the NBA, right? Like they don't have anybody who at any point in their career was considered a max guy. So you kind of have to win through depth, which I don't know that they're going to be able to do next year. So before we get into like the real big picture stuff, what, what are you doing with the McDermott McConnell conundrum? Like if you have to re-sign one, do you let them both go and use the mid-level? Like what's your thought on that portion of this? Yeah. Um, so that's a good question. I think, I mean, just by my assessment, TJ McConnell is going to get paid a lot less this offseason than, than Doug McDermott will. Um, just given Doug McDermott shoots, he's bigger. Um, well, it's you know, ironic I, though, because this is the best season of Doug McDermott's career and it's one of the worst shooting seasons. I know it's so, it's so weird how if you combine out. his normal shooting with everything else he's doing this year, he's like a $15 million a year player. Yeah. That's why I think, I mean, I think he'll probably um, like, he's not going to get Joe Harris money. Joe Harris, I think was four for 64, 72. but I think Doug's, Oh, it was, it was 72. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I think, yeah, Doug's definitely not going to get that, but I think um, he's definitely going to get more than the full mid level in my opinion. Uh, I mean, I think teams will look at the shooting pedigree and also say, okay, well, now he's elite at getting to the rim uh, off of stagger screens and just doing anything to get to the rim. Um, and he can at least survive in some defensive lineups. I think Joe Harris holds up a lot better defensively than Doug does. But point being, like, I mean, he's going to be a higher level free agent after some of the top guys go. Uh, with TJ, I mean, I I just, I have no idea what, what his market value will be. I think in some ways he may be – means more to the Pacers than another team, but you could also see a team like Atlanta being willing to, um, to, to pay for a really good backup guard. Cause obviously Rondo did not work out for them. Um, so I, I don't know, but I, I do think it'd be easier to keep TJ and, and my, my read of it would be that they'll, they'll probably have to let Doug go just considering how much that would cost to, to pay him. Um, and it's also interesting too, because then that, that brings up the question, well, what do you do with, uh, with Aaron holiday too? Because, I was mad. I, think, I had a fake trade for him that I loved at the deadline. The Houston second rounder that Milwaukee had for Aaron Holiday would have made so much sense for both teams because the Pacers wanted Pacers wanted a first round pick for him. That mm-hmm. Houston pick is basically a first round pick. It's going to be number thirty one, and the Bucks sorely needed a backup point guard. And I mean, shocker, Jeff Teague is not the answer. So <laughs> I personally just think that would have been a perfect trade for him. I've got some trivia for you. Okay, T.J. McConnell is going to be the first reserve to lead the NBA in a major stat in almost in over two decades, almost three decades. Obviously, he's going to lead the league in steals as a reserve. It's going to be the first reserve to do so in, I believe, 27 years. I don't have the exact number, but who was the last guy before TJ McConnell to lead the NBA in a major stat off of the bench? Ooh, this is a good question. Uh, can I know what stat it was? It was steals. It was steals. It was steals. So, and you're going to kick yourself. Now? You're going to kick yourself when you hear it. I don't. You probably oh, shouldn't. It was Nate McMillan, wasn't it? It was Nate McMillan. Oh, I knew it. Yes, when he was with, with he averaged yep. like three and a half steals one. He year had 219 steals off the bench one year. <laughs> he was so good defensively. Oh yeah. my god. But like, I mean, obviously, TJ McConnell is never going to have 100 or never going to have 219 steals in the season. Yeah. But like. I, I see a lot of people talking about all defense from Matisse Thibel and Alex Caruso as guys like 20 minute off the bench guys. I personally will never vote a 20 minute player all defense. Like I just, I can't bring myself to do it. I wouldn't have done it with Chris Dunn last year. I wouldn't have done it with Caruso in either years, mm-hmm. but like if we're having this conversation, if we're willing to go there for a 20 minute a game player, 
I think we got to at least acknowledge it for TJ McConnell. Now, I don't think he's as good as Matisse Thibel. I think he's probably on the same general wavelength as Alex Caruso, but Alex Caruso is bigger and a little more versatile. I don't know. Like, I'd be willing to pay TJ McConnell a fair bit. Like, I don't think he, I would give him the full mid level, but like, give him a couple guaranteed years at seven or eight oh, million. Definitely. I wouldn't blink at that. Like, that's a pretty good value. I think you're right. I think just given the, the construction of their finances, Unless there is like some really surprising move where like they trade Malcolm Brogdon into somebody's cap space or something. I don't think that McDermott is coming back exactly for the reason you outlined. Like I would feel pretty comfortable paying Doug McDermott 13, 14 million a year, three guaranteed years. Like if he got three years, 42 million, which is I think what KCP got, that seems reasonable to me. Like, especially if you can assume that his shooting is going to regress positively, like, Really, just the off-ball movement has been great this year. The offensive rebounding has been surprisingly good. Like It's kind of remarkable how good he is. He's honestly, other than Sabonis, he's the best offensive rebounder on the team. He's like well, at least this year. TJ Warren's a really year. good like, he, He's like showing off his athleticism this year. And he like, dunks like, a lot. Yeah. I have to look up his dunk numbers, but he he had a couple of monster dunks uh, in recent games. Like You don't think of him as a super athletic, and frankly, I don't think he always was. I think he's done a great job of getting his body into like mm-hmm. peak conditioning yeah. over the last few years. He now, like, it is a little out Crusoe, and I hate to compare two white guys, but there is a little bit like guys don't think of him as super athletic. So when he does something like that, it really energizes the team. But I think he's probably going to end up on like one of these huge cap space teams like the Knicks or the Spurs or maybe I guess not the Thunder because they don't want to win. Um, I, I think he's going to get – it's not overpaid. I think he's going to get comfortably paid on probably yeah. the biggest contract of his life. But before we get into like my actual fake trades, I want to dive in, into the center situation a little bit for sure, and just answer this question for me. I was looking at the on-off numbers. Last year – the Domas minutes were great and the Miles minutes were terrible. This year, the Miles minutes are great and the Saponas minutes are terrible. The When they're together, it's been kind of a mixed bag both years. But what's going on there? Why are the Turner minutes so much better this year? Yeah, I think um, this one's been tough. And I frankly, because I, I, I don't think you're coming at it from this way at all, but I just want to say it because I – have, I get really frustrated when people use on-off numbers just to say that a player is quote-unquote bad because um, there were some pretty high-ranking – It's national... all context, yeah. Yes, exactly. Like there were some really high-ranking people in national media who were like trashing not just Domas but like Nikola Vucevic. I'm like, okay, well, look at who Nikola Vucevic is playing with. He's playing with Dwayne Bacon and Chase and Randall in the starting lineup for half the year. I wonder why the on-offs suck. Um, and that's the thing with, with, with Domas. First of all, I mean, he's playing – uh, it's been better in terms of him not getting run to death on the court. Um, but he was playing like close to 40 minutes per game to start the year. And the team just wasn't that good after the, the first 11 games. Um, so that plays a part on it. You know, if you're playing for a losing team, your numbers just aren't going to be as good. But also it's just the defensive system. Yeah. Like when you take miles out, like he's I think opponents are shooting 49 percent at the rim against him or just when he's on the on the court. Um, teams are shooting 49 percent at the rim. Um, no, it's not on the court. It's uh, when he, I, I don't know. It's just something like that. It's either when he's at the court or when he's contesting shots with the rim point being that number skyrockets when he's out of the game. And a lot of that is because they use Domas to blitz and he's not even that bad at it. Like he's, he's really improved his footwork. His hands are pretty good. Uh, he, he was actually leading the team in steals, uh, for, I, I think March and April before TJ McConnell really came back on. But, 
Um, it just there's no backline help. Like a lot of times, people point at, at Domas and say that oh, it's it's his fault that this play got messed up. And no, it's because nobody rotates weak side. So once they get past the initial, um, you know, once they make the initial pass and shift the defense, it's not on Domas. I mean, he can't. There are like three or four guys who I trust to play two on ones in pick and roll, and one of them is Miles Turner. So it's almost like you you shoot yourself in the foot by just viewing through the lens of what Miles Turner can do because a it underrates what he can do, and also it it like totally undersells what a what kind of player Domas is. Um, point being just, they, they bleed points when miles is not in the game. I and mean, we've seen that in the 10 games that he's been out, like giving up 154 points to the wizards is not a coincidence given the, the, the style that they play, which is what's so frustrating because like, that's one of the things like I understand in some regards playing that way when miles is out there, like, at least I did at the beginning of the year because I'm like, okay, miles is like, uh, He's the second best rim protector in the league, as far as I'm concerned, behind Rudy Gobert. Joel Embiid could be, but he's just not consistently there defensively. I'm sure somebody will be upset that I said that, but it's true. We um, have to mention Anthony Davis. Like, yeah, Anthony Davis for sure. Well, I hear all this. Like, yeah. When I hear the defensive player of the year talk and people talk about like, oh, Rudy Gobert is the best defender in the league. Oh, Draymond's the best defender. Ben Simmons. I'm like, guys, guys, the best defender in the league is the guy who missed two months. Like, yes. Let's, let's maybe settle a down point. a little bit. Very fair point. Um, but it just, yeah, just like in terms of pure rim protection, though, I think Miles is probably number two for me. Like, AD is so good as a weak side helper, and he can, of course, hold up. Yeah, it depends Miles. on the scheme. Yeah. Like, the Lakers yeah. don't use him as a pure rim protector in the way yeah. that other teams might. And that, frankly, like, the best version of Anthony Davis is a center. So, obviously, if you're playing center, you're protecting the rim more than you're playing power forward. Yeah. So, but I, I do, going back to the on-off numbers, the more you talk about it, the more it just, this is a McMillan thing more than anything. Because when you took Miles out of the game last year, you could trust like a baseline defensive competence. Exactly. This year, it's just like all bets are off. Yeah. Which is, that's that's like part of the thing that was so frustrating this year. Like I, I've tried to be uh, patient with it and hope that things would change, but um, it just, it was wild. Like to, to funnel everything at the rim. And then when Miles isn't in the game, you still funnel everything at the rim, but there's nobody there to contest it. And it's just like, what are we doing here? Like we know this is, the, the we're, we're sending the ball right to the rim. And there's nobody there to stop it. So I, I it's just, uh, yeah, that was a, that was something else. But uh, with Miles, I mean, part of the reason that his minutes are such a plus too, like his solo minutes have been really good. Um, they might have tailed off a little bit recently. I haven't, I haven't checked in a second, but uh, he's really improved offensively this year. Like he's still not, uh, he's still not like even close to Domas's level as an offensive player. He's, you know, I mean, Domas is top three, four uh, offensive center in the game. But, you know, Miles has really improved his handle. He, he's uh, just improved his overall feel for the game. He makes a lot quicker decisions. So it's easier to survive on the floor when he's out there as a solo center. So I think that bolsters it up, too. Um, it's a lot less about um, which guy is better and a lot more about uh, the context that they get put into. You know, I do, I do think we ignore Turner's offensive improvement because we're so fixated on the shooting with him. And I got to be honest, yep. like I'm very nearing the point where I'm just like, he is not going to be willing to take eight threes a game. Like he probably should. He has, he has the Darren Collison syndrome, right? Where like <laughs> he refuses to shoot unless he's wide open. I think 75% of his threes this year have been wide open. Like, I, I don't know if it's a confidence thing or an, I don't want to miss thing. I don't know what it is, but I think we tend to get over fixated on the shooting and like 
less fixated on the fact that, A, he has some, he's a better ball handler than he gets credit for. He's getting better, closer to the rip. Like, I, I think that he can do more, but we just want him to shoot 10 threes a game so badly. So before I get into my fake trades, and I have fake trades for both of them, I'll just ask you point blank, which one do you want to keep and which one do you want to trade? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I have a cop-out answer. Uh, oh, I know what you're going to say. Go on. <laughs> who, it's, I mean, it is true. It's whoever gets more value. Like, right. I just think, like, especially when you're a smaller market team, um, you can't think about or you can't let fit dictate what you're doing. Like, I think I just look at it like it, of course, fit plays a factor in some regards. Like you want to have guys who fit together, but the biggest thing is just talent. Like who is the most talented player or what gets you the most talent on the team? And if, if trading Domas gets you the most talent back, I would do it in a heartbeat. If trading miles gets you the most talent back, I would do it in a heartbeat. Um, I do think it's like, I think about it a lot in some regards, like, the mind game I play is well with miles, you know, you can be an elite defensive team. Can you get enough offense back to, to be a, a, a you know, like your ceiling is a conference finals team and then go from there. Um, or if you, if you're with Domas, who do you get back? Like, cause I think it's, it, it's harder to see with Domas because if you uh, like, if you do trade miles, ideally you're getting a guy who's a stretch for that can protect the rim. Um, and that's just not something that is easily, able to find in the NBA. Um, so I don't know there. I mean, there are a lot of roster construction issues that come up with the idea of trading both guys, because in some regards they do fit like, okay, next to each other until you play a team that goes five out. Um, and that's where you see some of the weaknesses. Uh, but I don't know. I think it's, it, it adds an extra layer that's rough too, because I think there's this idea that Domas is a ball hog, uh, because his touches are so high. And I, I just, I don't agree with that. And I question whether or not those people watch the game when they say that um, he's a connector. I mean, his, his, yeah. his goal out there is a connector. He really is not a shoot first guy. Like he has his moments where I, I do think he can pound the ball a little bit, but that's more when, because things aren't going on off ball and opening up for, for the, there are no cutters. There's no one for him to pass to. If there are cutters, he's going to find them. Like that's what he wants to do. He wants to post up and use that as a vessel for, for more efficient opportunities. But um, I mean, his whole thing is making it easier for everyone else. Like we can get way too enamored with screen assists uh, because I, I, it's just an annoying term that's been overly hyped up. Um, but it, it, it's very real. Like Malcolm Brogdon is a very good driver, but his handle's not awesome. Like he's not great at getting separation on his own. Domas opens things up completely for him to get to the rim. Um, same thing with Karras in some regards. Like it, you just make it easier on a ball handler to maneuver and get where they want by giving them some extra separation because of how well he screens and angles and um, just the, the plays you can make off of that. So if you trade Domas, I, I think that's my other thing. I'm like, well, the, the offense takes a major hit without him. Uh, like people can say what they want about spacing. Like spacing is really important, but I think you got to factor in too. Your guy has to be able to get space. Like if you can't get space one-on-one -on -one or you can't create an advantage, then there's nothing to attack offensively. Um, so th there's just a lot of factors that go into it. I'm very torn on it um, because I like both guys individually as people a lot too. Um, so that's, uh, it's my really extended way of saying whoever gets you the most value is who you have to go with. We haven't talked about Karis much and some of the shooting drives me crazy, but like, yes, I swear when you get him on the right day, that dude is just an agent of chaos where like, he's so fast and he he's such a tight handle that like there are games where you get him and you're just like, 
there is nothing a defense can do. And I wasn't a big fan of his in Brooklyn just because I think that has more value on a team like Indiana than it does in a team with Durant and Irving. But anyway, I don't want to get too deep onto Karis Avert. I want to focus mm-hmm. on the centers. I have three fake trades, and if you have any, we can dive into those as well. My preference would probably be to trade Sabonis because I look at what Vucevic got at the deadline and I look at how many teams were interested. And I just think from a value perspective, you're going to be able to build a better team that way. So here's my Sabonis trade. I suspect that you're not going to love it, but this is, I think, a trade that makes a lot of sense for both teams. The real danger is that you're strengthening a team in your conference, but Demonis Sabonis to Boston for Marcus Smart, Aaron Neesmith, and a first-round pick. What do you think? I don't think it's bad. Um, like Aaron Neesmith has been good the last yeah. month. Like he looks. I really almost good took out the first-round pick for that reason. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I actually, I mean, I think Boston would do that because I do think Domas gets you um, probably. Uh, like I think he gets you at least what. Uh, um, They're a top what, five what offense Vuce- if they have. Sabonis, oh yeah, easily. Brown, I mean, he gets you. Tatum. He nets you back at least what Vucevic got, um, and he's younger too. And he's yeah, like, exactly. So I, think I think he's also going to age a little better. Now that's not much of a concern for him, but yeah, I, I think on balance, like now you have your big three, and I guess if you hope that Kemba comes back in his big four, the question for them just becomes: Can you defend well enough? And the answer is probably not if you still have Kemba. But this is Danny Ainge we're talking about, so there's no guarantee they're still going to have Kemba. Mm-hmm. So I think you do that thinking this is our big three. If you have Brown and Tatum on the wing, your defense, like there is a baseline competence that comes with that. And Brad Stevens has done a good job in the past of scheming away. Not well, bad defenders when you're talking about Isaiah Thomas, but like generally he's done a good job of scheming out, like getting below average defenders up to average. Yeah. So I think if you could defend it, like your, your path to contention is, League average defense, top three offense. Yeah, definitely. And I think he would do so much for oh God. That would be a really fun team to watch. Cause like I'm not a fan of the Pacers. I just cover the team. Like I would love, like, oh man, Domas, Tatum, and Brown. Like, cause that would do so much for both Tatum and Brown in terms of creating on ball and and working the pick it would and roll. generate really some just, sorely needed movement. Yeah, they just don't have a dynamic pick and roll guy right now. Like I I like Rob Williams and I think he's gonna be really good for them. But um in terms of for the Pacers, like I mean, I think ideally if you're trading Domas, like that's where it's, it gets hard with trades because you, you you try and come up with like a one for one in your head, but rarely are those ever going to happen. Um, like I think Marcus Smart, he's uh, – I don't know what the rest of his deal is right now. I know it's not a ton of money, but um, he's a good player. He would be one of – I mean, he'd automatically just provide a ton of playmaking. Uh, it wouldn't – it obviously wouldn't give you what you're, you, you'd be losing with Domas and his playmaking ability, but, I mean, that makes your defense even better. Um I, I, again, I like Neesmith as a player moving forward, and I've liked him a lot this year. Uh, and a first-round pick is good. Like, you can never really be bad on a first-round pick um, unless you pick TJ Leaf. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's not terrible value. I don't think I would want to do that one if I'm the Pacers, but, I mean, I think there are merits to it. So my argument for it is you kind of can play defense the way that Utah does, where Turner alone is doing all of the rim protecting. And then you can have everybody else stay at home and shooters. So you're like giving up the fewest threes in the league. And you also have good rim protection numbers. You also can play five out. Like obviously Levert isn't an elite shooter, but like everybody in that starting five, presuming Warren is back healthy can shoot at at least at like a league average or better level. Mm -hmm. And then also like we saw how good TJ Warren looked with miles Turner at the center last year. Hopefully you're unlocking some of that and that's helping you out offensively. I think the real concern for me more than anything is that that would be the worst rebounding team in NBA history. 
Like yeah, that's the real danger of breaking up Sabonis and Turner is that Turner just can't rebound. I think it's let. Oh yeah, he's not a great rebounder. Uh, I, I won't cut the shit on that. I'm sorry. I didn't mean if I was allowed to swear on this. Uh, you know, th- no, you're fine. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's he's not a great rebounder in his own, but he's actually solid at boxing out. A lot of the problems with the Pacers rebounding has been just really bad uh, guard rebounding. Like they are te- like the guards are terrible at boxing out. Um, like I, I think Miles and Domas are the only two players who ever consistently find a man. Um, you know, a lot of times the wings on the team will just kind of stand halfway between their guy and halfway to the rim. And then that honestly does more damage than anything else. And it's not to like single out guys, but it's just, it's never really, it's never been good. Um, but I agree. I mean, their rebounding would be horrific with miles and Domas this year. They were barely, um, a bottom 10 rebounding team. So it's, uh, now, I don't know how important rebounding is in the modern NBA, but if you think it's at all important, then that's going to be a problem where, you could probably be maybe like a top five defense on balance when you just think about stopping shots. But if you keep giving up offensive rebounds, then you're going to fall to like 10 or 15. I have a one for one trade for miles Turner. This one I like a lot. I just worry that if you do this, you're basically handing the championship to this team for the next few years. Miles Turner for Joe Harris. Uh, No, I don't think I'll do that. I, I get that. I mean, I think the offensive potential would be pretty high. But without a superstar, like you're really pushing the boundaries of like, what can you be if you're trying to be the 2015 Hawks? So Mm -hmm. I get that. But quietly finding a Miles Turner trade that involves present talent is tough. Like the New Orleans is the situation that like everybody wants to get Turner to because people want Zion to play with a shooting center. They're not going to give up Ingram for Turner. Like clearly if they wanted Turner, they would have done it last offseason instead of getting Mm -hmm. Steven Adams. So like, I don't know. What do you think the Turner team is? Because it doesn't seem like it's Boston either. Yeah, no, it's that's a good question. I mean, I thought uh, Sacramento was a possibility, um, but Rashawn Holmes has been awesome, um, and I would. I mean, if I'm Sacramento, I, I'd actually, I, I haven't thought enough about Holmes because I don't know if I'd want to repay him because he's going to get a lot. Um, and it seems like he's had a, like I don't have like direct reporting, but it seems like the Raptors have been interested in in Holmes and that he would actually make a lot of sense for the system what they're doing, but. Um, no, in terms of like a Turner trade, I don't have like a specific team because all the like like you mentioned, all the teams who I thought he would make sense on uh, have kind of just gone away from there. I do think Charlotte, there have been massive ties to Charlotte. Um, there's always reporting around the trade deadline and, and headed into the year that Charlotte is interested in Miles Turner. Um, I mean, I, I did a, a fake trade with, with somebody earlier this year on, on a pod of, uh, I think it was um pj washington and like a second round pick or something like that for miles um and i i would i mean i would contemplate that if i'm the pacers because i think pj gives you the kind of guy who's a backline rotator that does a lot on offense um and can help you stay at least competent on defense or maybe even slightly above average while while doing even more offensively and just brings another wrinkle um like but i'm also really high on pj washington so it just depends uh, but I do think Charlotte has like there's there's definitely something there. Yeah, I mean, given the Pacers and their history with guys who have the same name, like obviously the PJ history. <laughs> yeah. My thought was, what about a Miles for Miles trade? Something involving Turner and Miles Bridges. But man, Lamelo loves Miles Bridges so much as a love threat that like I don't think you break that up. And I think whoever the Pacers, or rather whoever get the Hornets get as a center, has to be able to like they have to primarily be a lob finisher, not necessarily a shooter. So, I mean, it would help their defense a lot. But also, like, I kind of just don't want them to get a center 
because I love how willing James Brago is to be like, oh, it's been so you know fun. What? Screw it. We're going to put play five guys who are six, seven. I love four. watching them play, man. They're, They're so, so fun. fun. Um, Before yeah, the no, injuries, it's really like Brago was a real coach of the year candidate. Oh, and yeah. this has been a hipster thing for a few years where even when they had terrible rosters, James Brago teams were always really fun to watch. So I'm glad that he has LaMelo and we don't have to worry about like him losing his job for lack of talent. He is just a joy to have in the NBA. Yeah, I really like him as a coach. And LaMelo's been, of course, amazing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you see what's what the problem is with the Hornets a lot of times. when, Like even just playing against Chicago. Like Chicago is broken this year uh, in terms of roster construction. Like they're playing Lowry marketing at the three. Um, but they just beat the crap out of the Hornets on the glass when they played. And uh, I mean, it showed like you, you lose by 20 when you get out rebounded by like 15 boards. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Charlotte has a definite need and I, I do think miles would make sense for them. It would be very sad to see him go, but I also like kind of really enjoy that fit because they could still be very uh, diverse on defense and, and do a lot of fun things there. Um, and I also thought about it too. Like I remember I've had people pitch to me miles for miles. I don't think um, if I'm the Hornets, Given what what Miles has done this year, I don't I don't think I would trade Miles Bridges. I don't think I would either. I think he's got to stay there. So I looked into Malcolm Brogdon trades too, mm-hmm. just because we got that reporting around the trade deadline. Personally, I don't see any reason to trade Brogdon when he's I healthy agree. on that contract. Like that's just a great value, and he's a very good player. The thing is, most of the win now teams that would want him, I'm just not sure what the trade is. Like the Lakers would love to turn Dennis Schroeder into Malcolm Brogdon. I don't think the Pacers are interested in that sign and trade. And it's not like the Lakers are overflowing with, with, um, with trade chips. That doesn't make sense. I think Dallas would be a nice fit. Dallas is already out several picks. And like, I guess the Pacers would probably be interested in Jalen Brunson, but that's a downgrade. So like, I'm struggling to find a one for one swap. So the idea I came up with, and I'm not crazy about it. What about the Knicks? What about Brogdon for Obi Toppin in a first round pick? Oh, no in mind. But that also saves you $15 million. I, I don't care. No, like, you're I'm just, not, that, you're not just out on Obi. Just in terms of – no, I, I mean, I, I like Obi. I, that's like my only qualms with Tibbs this year has been that he just has completely misutilized Obi Toppin. Um, he hasn't been great, granted, but like – I mean, he's just used him mostly as a floor spacer, and that's – I mean, he, he could space the floor at Dayton, but he did a lot more in the role game. He just hasn't been used in that way. Um, so that's been a little bit disappointing. Um but just in terms of sheer value, like I've always been, and this is how I felt about the, um, you know, the Celtics uh, letting go of Gordon Hayward. And obviously that was not up to them. Uh, it, it, he wanted to be out of Boston, but I just think it is better to have a, pay, a, a player who is maybe slightly overpaid, overpaid. And that's not Brogdon at all. But point being like, it is better to have the big contract than to not have the big contract because in a lot of ways you can't, just get that back and it's hard to a structure things cap wise and also it's just good to have a player who you can trade that has that kind of value like um i i was already getting dogged on the timeline for it today because i was like oh um you know one of my friends was like you know boston's really missing hayward and they are um they they really have missed gordon hayward a ton this year as a play connector and uh just the fact that he was the board like the best fourth option in the league bar none last year um, really good defender too. And I, you know, I got, I was like, Oh, but the TPE just as a joke. And I already had a bunch of people going at me like, Oh, well the TPE just had 30 points today. And Evan Fournier, I'm like, yeah, but Evan Fournier's on a, on an expiring, he's probably not going to resign in Boston because they probably can't pay him. Like 
at some point it's better to just have the contract, even if it's bigger, in my opinion, because it, it just gives you the, the flexibility to actually do things. And it's, it's just better to have a good player. Like I, maybe it's a little bit reductive to think that way, but that's just normally how I view it. Um, yeah. I, I think it, it it's very context dependent where like, yeah. if this was 15, well, yeah, million, it's one thing if you're paying Gordon yeah. Hayward or Chandler Parsons, you know, right. so it's, but if this, this trade would create 15 million in cap space, I would probably be more open to it, but it doesn't. It's just fifteen million in luxury tax base. Exactly, which, like, which does it's helpful, for me. Like, but it doesn't really do much in terms of improving the team. Let me sweeten the pot a little bit. I said Obi Toppin and a first round pick. What if I told you you could have any Knicks first round pick? You name it. You name the year. You name the protection. And these are the Knicks we're talking about. So, like, there's no part of you that's tempted to just be like. Let's take a 2024 unprotected first from the Knicks and see what happens. That doesn't sweeten the bot for you at all. Uh, could I have 2019 first round pick RJ Barrett? <laughs> no, that's that's a that's a bridge too far. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Oh, he's been so good this year, man. But no, been, that that wouldn't sweeten the pot for me. I just don't uh, like. I think the Knicks are actually going in a good direction now. Um, I mostly agree, but you just you can never underestimate the potential. For oh no, I know. Every time <laughs> I was uh, I was I was kind of biding my time at the deadline just waiting like oh is something going to happen with the Knicks what are they going to do um but no they did not and I was very pleased about that I will say I think some smart team is going to trade for Obi Toppin either this offseason or next because it's through no fault yeah it's through no fault of his own it's just they drafted him to replace Julius Randle and then Julius Randle became an all-NBA guy right like I'm sorry there's just not much of a fit there at least defensively between Randle and Toppin so there's just not many minutes you can find for him. So I hope he gets somewhere where like, if the Knicks traded him for the 15th pick this year, I think that would be like a good situation for all parties involved. So something to keep an eye on, but I've kept Mark, I've kept you too long as it is. I've got to get you out of here, but before we do anything you want to plug. Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, Oh, you'll be back. Trust me. We have another, we have another idea that we've been batting around in DMs that we're going to do closer to free agency. So you'll yeah, be man, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I always enjoy talking. So this was great. Um, you can find me on Twitter at M Schindler MBA. You can find all my work at, uh, at premiumhoops.org as well as Indie Cornrows. I do podcasts all the time. Uh, I write pretty frequently. I actually have something coming out on Darius, uh, not Darius, Darius Basil tomorrow morning uh, that I'm psyched about. So uh, yeah, thanks again for having me on, man. Mark, it was an absolute pleasure. We will be back with Colin. I think we're recording tomorrow, so maybe Tuesday, if not Wednesday. But that'll do it for us today. Um, Like, subscribe, whatever it is you need to do to get this podcast out there. And we will be back. Have a pleasant, well, I guess it's Mother's Day for us, but when people listen, they're not going to, it's going to be past that for us. So I hope you all had a pleasant Mother's Day. So, yeah, that'll do it for us today, and we will be back.